Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Oh, thank you. You guys are sweet. <laughs> awesome. Awesome, awesome. All right, well, uh, because Kim's not here, we forgot a very important group of people. Uh, if it is your first time here, if you would just raise your hand. Don't worry, we're not going to attack you or, or anything. But if it's your first time visiting, raise your hand really high. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Awesome. Wow. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Awesome. Cool. Well, um, so... Uh, so how many of you were here last month when I shared a, a prophetic vision that I had for our church here that involved uh, the floor being torn up? How many of you remember that? Wow, far less than I expected. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> so uh, I shared a vision that I had uh, about a month ago, um, and uh, uh, this is kind of a, a, another follow-up to that. And so I'm going to share the picture really, really briefly, and, and then we'll, we'll dive in from there. So uh, we were in worship several, uh, several weeks ago, and all of a sudden I saw this vision of uh, Jesus dancing in the middle of worship, and we were we were playing, we were we were you know just uh, singing the song, praising the Lord, and I saw Jesus dancing. And as Jesus danced, he got more and more aggressive uh, uh, with his with his dancing. He had this big smile on his face. His expression was nothing but but one of joy. But as he spun faster and faster, the ground started to shake, and um, it began shaking so much that the that the floorboards started peeling up and and just kind of coming apart. And eventually, by the time that he was done, all the floorboards had been torn up and were, and were thrown everywhere. If you've ever seen, uh, you ever redone your floors or, you know, watched Chip and Joanna Gaines or anything like that, you see, you know, like the, when the floorboards are all torn up, you can see the ground, uh, the, the kind of foundation stuff underneath. Yeah, you ever, can you picture that? And so it was like that. And as it did, I saw this, these giant stones that made up the foundation of, of the ground underneath. And as Jesus continued to move and to dance, one of the stones right up here, in fact, started vibrating and kind of rising up out of, out of the foundation. And as this stone, uh, and it was big, you know, it was like kind of from, from here all the way over to, to here and equally, equally tall. It was this big stone. And on the stone there was uh, words written on each side of it. On one side, on the main side that was, that was facing me, it said the word uh, performance. And, but on the side, it said other words like, like perfection and, and excellence and, and things like that. As this stone rattled up and came up out, it landed on the ground. And I saw this stone. Now this, in, in, the, in, the, in the picture, it looked like a good stone. Like it, it was, you know, it looked good. It was, was well-shaped, but... There was these kind of cracks throughout different parts of it, and in these cracks were uh, like this kind of mold sort of look, almost like a blue cheese kind of situation, you know, if you want to imagine. Maybe not quite so uh, moldy as blue cheese, but um, I, I, I saw that. And so I was asking the Holy Spirit what that was, um, and I heard him say, it's the consequence of your humanity your culture, and, and your history. And, and essentially what, what I interpreted this to mean was that, you know, performance itself is not inherently a bad thing. We do need to do things. I need to perform my duties as a parent, you know, and doing well at that and trying to do well at that is not a bad thing, right? 
I, I think I think so. If you want to feel comfortable enough to <laughs> agree with that, but um, now there is a mindset of performance where I my value is based on how well I do, and my value uh, what I expect of others is based on what, only on what they do rather than who they are. And my I, the way I assess myself is it, it, there, there can be a misalignment there. Yeah, you can imagine that possibility. <laughs> yeah, and so. It wasn't that the idea of perfection and performance and excellence were inherently bad, but there was these veins of things in it that were not meant to be of God. And I got the impression that God wanted to clean those things out. We've actually had several messages that have kind of been uh, wrestling with this idea of what, how do we remove performance? Because as you know, again, and I addressed this last time we talked, we, we do live in a country that really values performance, values the way that you perform. Would you, would you guys agree with that generally? Now, that's not always a bad thing, but, but it does create a mindset. It creates a belief system. It creates a lens. It creates a way of seeing the world and seeing ourselves. Yeah? Does that make sense? And so I wanted to take some time to dive deeper into how we can extract the... The, we can really partner with the Lord in extracting the negative effects of this while not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, not, not throwing the entire stone away because that gets into this situation where, well, I'll just do whatever I want. What I does doesn't, doesn't matter. You know, oh, you're not loving me for who I am. You're asking me to perform because you're asking me to show up for work on time. Or wife, you're asking me to perform because you demand that I not throw my clothes on the ground. That's what a performance-based household we have. Um, you know, <laughs> it could get weird really fast, right? At the same time, in that same circumstance, I could be in that place and I could be operating in a performance mentality of, oh no, if I leave these clothes on the ground, April's not going to love me anymore. That's an extreme example, but, but, but we have experiences like that, yeah? So what do you do with that? Now, um, this is going to be a nuanced discussion. What a nuanced discussion means is that you're going to have to think, and I'm going to leave lots of gaps in a lot of places, and I want you to be able to think through those, explore those, and, and think that through. Is that okay with you guys? Um, and so I'm going to kind of explore this idea of performance, perfection, excellence, and I want to uh, talk about uh, performance culture, performance mindset, I want to use uh, sexuality as an example of that. You're welcome, and I'm sorry, um, <laughs> as it may apply. Uh, and I want to talk about how Jesus addressed this very issue. Does that sound good? Okay. So, uh, so I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian environment. And because of that, I got a certain view of what healthy sexuality looks like in life. Now, we could all probably list an example, but the one that I learned growing up was don't have sex before you get married. That was about it. Um, there were some other things in there, you know, but as far as what applied to me and what applied to my experience and what applied to my story, that was really the main thing that, um, that, that you know, landed on, on my uh, my experience. Now, as I became a teenager, I started to sift through the belief systems that I had grown up with and kind of go through a process of deciding, do I believe this? Do I still want to do this? Do I want to take this thing that my parents have given me, hold it out in front of me and decide whether that, that 
I wanted to choose that for myself. And I, I went through a long period of that. And one of the things on that list was this, this behavior that I had been asked to do of, you know, don't, don't have sex before you get married. Um, and so I looked at that and thought about it and analyzed it in my very nerdy way that I do. Um, and I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to keep this one. I'm going to keep this one. This, this seems like this is a, a valuable thing. I, I have a thing inside me. I, don't, I still haven't decided if this is a good trait or a bad trait, but I hate doing things just because you're supposed to do them. Um, I find that very, very frustrating. Um, I want to know why. I, I want to know there's a purpose, and I want to know there's value in doing things a certain way. And so, again, I haven't decided whether that's a good trait or not, but <laughs> I, when I looked at this, I saw value in, in making this choice. And so... Because of that decision, uh, and just being open about my life, I didn't have sex until I got married uh, to this person over here, April. <laughs> um, so I won, right? <laughs> I, I did it. I accomplished the correct goal for sexuality as a Christian. Oh, I love the rising tension. This is beautiful. <laughs> Hooray me. I did the best. You couldn't possibly do better than that. And we, we laugh because we know there's something coming. But, <laughs> but that's kind of a large portion of the view, right? We have this view of diversion from God's plan, of, of sin, we almost have the, um, the way I've heard it taught, and maybe you've heard it taught too, is you start out with a white page, and any little blot of ink, you know, can of course never come off. And it goes on there, and you don't want how many, you know, blots of ink do you want added. Of course, the blood of Jesus takes that off. We don't really explain how exactly, but still don't make any mistakes. And this is kind of the framework that I picked up being in the church of this idea of the way that sin works. And it creates this fear of, I don't want this thing to be full of dots, Right? It's an idea of we start with perfect and it just get, we want to get it as little messed up along the way, right? Everyone okay? Okay, I want you to roll with me on this because there is a principle that, that Jesus taught that can help us understand why we might be very mistaken in reducing our picture of obedience to merely following a set of prescriptions, and Jesus drew this out. There's one of the main things that he taught, and it's an important thing. Um, if you would, turn to the, to the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 5. Matthew, chapter 5, very famous portion, portion of Scripture. Um, and, um, you know, I know not all of you have physical Bibles, so, you know, access Matthew 5 in the cloud or uh, download Matthew 5 or whatever, whatever it is the kids are doing these days. Um, <laughs> but... So this is the this is the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is uh, you know a a, a beautiful um, portion of scripture. I've heard it described many ways. This is this is the the constitution of the kingdom of God. Some people have called it. This is the the um, the the the. Uh, the, the statement of values for, for Jesus as king of, of, of that kingdom. This is, this is the, um, 
I've, I've heard this described as, as the political ideology of the kingdom of God. That all these things, and, and it really is, that this is, the, this is really the center of what Jesus taught while he was here. The things that, that Jesus taught are collected in this place. And it's a, it's a beautiful portion of scripture that, that I think merits uh, continuous study. Um, one of the challenges that many of us have, because uh, I know a lot of us have grown up in church, is not so much with a, a lack of adherence or a lack of value for this area, but an over-familiarity with it. That, that we can become so familiar with uh, the way that it has been taught to us or the way that we have seen it, that we can maybe miss out on how radical a statement some of these things were and what, what kind of shape they were, they were drawing in, the, in their day. And so, um, so if we go to Matthew 5, um, we start out, of course, with the, with the Beatitudes, with, again, is describing some of the, the value system of, of the kingdom. We talk, he has this great metaphor of you're salt, the salt of the earth, you're, you're a city set on a hill, and all these beautiful things. And then we get to verse uh, 17. Verse 17. Now, this passage of scripture has, has haunted me for my entire existence because it's a really interesting and challenging one. We're going to get through the whole thing, but uh, we're going to have to kind of jump through little spots to, just for the sake of time. So... Uh, chapter 5, verse 17. So, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, uh, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Um, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, pretty serious. And Jesus is establishing something that is very, very important in this, in this moment. He's saying, hey, I am, he has shown up, he has... Um, operated miraculously. He has revealed himself to be who he is. And now he is saying, here is, are the tenets of my kingdom. I am not showing up here telling you to just throw away everything that has come before. It would have been the Torah, the, the, the law, the prophets, the, the journey, uh, the, the, the kind of marking of the relationship between God and man up until this point. But to fulfill them, it's, and it, it creates a situation where I, I think sometimes as Protestants or sometimes as modern Christians, we like to zero in on a few other portions of Scripture and say, well, I'm not under the law, you know. Uh, we just got to be careful we're not completely undermining what Jesus says uh, when, we, <laughs> when we do that. Um, and again, if you read in context, that is more about a perspective and relationship to the law rather than my need to ignore the law necessarily. So anyway, we can get into that another day perhaps. But um, Jesus is pretty, very, very uh, specifically and with strong specific language says, I am not here to abolish this. I am here to fulfill this. We'll get into how and why later. But then he goes into this series of uh, what on surface level seem like behaviors. Um, so verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, uh, raka, which is like fool or idiot or something kind of like that, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. 
I don't know if he said it in that tone of voice, but that's the way I'm saying it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, uh, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer this gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together. On the way to your, um, to, uh, to your adversary... Uh, sorry, jumping. Uh, adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and then you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So, we'll get into more of this in here in a second. But at first glance, if we have a performance mentality, if we have an unhealthy performance mentality, we hear this and think Jesus has just made everything more difficult. You, you've heard it said, "Don't murder." I'm telling you, even if you get angry at someone this is the surface level hearing, then, it, it, then you deserve judgment, right? It's like, oh, now, now I have to even perform with my thoughts, right? <laughs> Go on to verse 27. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. Uh, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, that makes sense, but wow. That's, again, this standard is so high. It feels like he's asking us, again, to perform with our thoughts. It feels like he's demanding perfection from our thoughts. Like that's, He's making it so much harder. Um, goes into divorce. He says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's like, oh, man. A interesting quick historical note. In this time, just so you're clear about what Jesus was speaking into, during that time, it was only legal for a man to divorce his wife. A wife had no right whatsoever to divorce her husband on any grounds, and men could divorce their wives for any reason at any time. And it would often result in those women being abandoned and suffering because of that result. And it was a, somewhat a normal practice to, uh, I'm going to say this in a very crass way, but to just divorce your wife when you were done with her and move on to a new wife. And so that, that is what Jesus is speaking in. That's the kind of culture that Jesus is speaking into with this. And so he is actually creating safety for a victimized people group in this particular situation, which is important to understand because it was a different historical situation than it is now, just to be clear. So, anyway. Um, so, so, thanks. <laughs> well, it was Jesus, so, you know. <laughs> um, his idea, not mine. Um, so, uh, again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your own head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black, unless you have some good dye. Um, uh, <laughs> the, uh, all you need to say simply is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So again, this is this idea, this internal value system of like, hey, this stuff doesn't belong to you. You cannot use the credibility of someone else to try to add to your credibility is essentially what this is saying. I don't want to pull on the trustworthiness of these other things to try to make myself more suffer. Just, just let the truth be the truth and, and, and say, speak truthfully. 
Again, we get to verse 38. I said, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. That's why I brought a coat today. Um, If anyone uh, forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So again, it's this kind of uh, self-protective, you know, tit for tat, uh, uh, you know, eye for an eye type of thing. It's like saying, no, I, I, no, I don't want revenge and, and recompense to be, to be the motivator behind these actions. Give, and basically, this is a, a way, again, it says, <laughs> don't resist an evil person. This is saying this in the context of, of resisting someone who is doing wrong to you. This is, of course, during Roman rule where they would often be uh, mistreated in some of these ways by unjust rulers that were uh, over them at the time. And so, Again, we get to some of the, even the most tricky ones. Verse 43, you have been, you've heard what was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise, S-U-N in this case, on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what rewards will you get? Are you not, are, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And then he ends with a nice little kind of cinch at the end. Is Also, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. <laughs> okay, well, I was worried that this was a perfectionism chapter, but he just confirmed it for me right there, didn't he? This is just all about being perfect. And so... If we have a performance mentality, we will look at this, and I can't even feel my feelings. I can't even think, think a thought. Sometimes I don't even feel control of my thoughts, and you'll actually see long uh, strides of Christian debate about, like, you know, a bird landing on your head versus building a nest on your head and things like that of, of like, when does the sin happen in, in this case? And I'm not saying any of those arguments are, are wrong necessarily, but they are often rooted in this performance mentality of, I need to do this to be good. Um, now, Jesus is walking a very beautiful line with the way that he is, he is saying this. And I want, we need to have a little bit more historical t- context to really understand what Jesus is doing. I want you to keep, keep a finger here, but I want you to turn back real quick to the, uh, the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah. It's on page uh, 718, uh, if you're looking. Uh, Jeremiah 31, um, now, uh, Jeremiah covered a lot, a lot of prophecies, but this, this particular section here in uh, chapter 31 is talking about the restoration of Israel. It is, it is prophesying, essentially, the day of the Lord. The, the, um, it, it has some, some allusions to the, to the Messiah in it, and it is this, this picture of, again, what, what God is going to do. From our perspective, the way that we would look at it is what his kingdom is going to look like and, and what's going to happen when his kingdom shows up. And so... If we go to, um, again, Jeremiah 31, or download uh, Jeremiah 31, um, might have to re-download the Old Testament because we might not visit there very much sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so um, let's start in verse 31. So uh, chapter 31, verse 31 says, uh, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with, peop- with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
So again, this is a picture of the entire history of God's relationship with, with Israel. He often uses the metaphor of marriage. I made a covenant with you. I bound myself to you and you to me. And then the, the history has been this back and forth of they would follow God and they would go after other gods and idols. They would follow God and trust in him, but then they'd want to really trust in military might and do that all, as well. They'd follow God and then they'd let foreign gods in, trust in military might, and then stop giving to the poor. And they would get feedback from prophets, from judges. They would adjust back, but then again, this, this thing would happen back and forth, back and forth. And it's talking about this rela- relationship. And, but he's talking about this future from, from this point where he would create a new covenant, a new, a new uh, marriage contract, if, if you will. And so verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now the word uh, law here is the Hebrew uh, word Torah. And again, we have to be careful with the, this word law because often in some of the traditions that at least I grew up in, we can view the law as this negative thing that we're above now. And I think that we can make, make a mistake in a couple ways because the law in, in the Hebrew mind was not just the 613 commandments that, yes, there was more than 10, uh, the, there are the 613 commandments that are all throughout the, the, uh, the, the Pentateuch um, it was that, but also the story of their history together with God. That's why in, in, the time, in Jesus' time, they would call that the law and the prophets. It's the same concept of this entire story, this history kind of bound together. And so what, what Jeremiah is prophesying here, what the Lord is telling us here, this would have been very revolutionary at the time. It's like, oh, the, the, the Torah is not just something you try to aspire to. It actually write the Torah in people's minds, in their hearts. He'll put it inside of them, and they will actually live out of it. That's a radical picture that would have been so different from the way they would have understood it at that time. And this is the very thing that Jesus is inviting people into. When we see it in that context, in that way of the story, Jesus is not saying you need to perform better. He's saying, I care just as much, if not more, about your internal world as I do about your behavior, about the actions that you perform. It is a statement of value that I am adopting you into this family, and I don't just care that you don't do the behavior of murdering someone. I care that you have the maturity, the health, the the wholeness of heart to be able to healthily process and walk through the kind of anger that would lead to murder. Does that make sense? Because also, when you look at this word perfect, that looks so scary to our eyes, you have to understand um, our idea of perfection was birthed in an age of uh, precision machinery, of laser levels. To us, perfect is like a cube that is exactly the right measurement, one inch by one inch by one inch on the side. That is what perfect is. Perfect is completely clean, completely white, that white sheet of paper that with, with no dot of ink on it. Those kinds of things did not exist in Jesus' time. Things were made by hand, and while they could build things with great precision, most things were not, uh, did not operate under that kind of precision. Paper was, in fact, not white. <laughs> it was kind of blotchy and brown because of the way that they made it. And um, 
And so this word, if you translate it literally, both in the Hebrew uh, version of when you see the word perfection translated in the scripture and in the Greek sense, is much more akin to the word complete than it is to our idea of exactly rightly measured. Does, does that make sense? And again, you can look all this up yourself if you'd like, and it's, it's helpful to help shift your mind a little bit. It is more, uh, it is the same Greek word is often used, like once a man has really uh, grown to full maturity, then he is said to be perfect. Not perfect, again, in the way that we think, but this person is complete. They are fully grown. They are fully developed. They have come into maturity. And another kind of contextual way this word would have been used is that thing, if it was an object or, or a person, when they would speak of them having lived a perfect life, they lived the, to the fullness of the purpose that they had. That thing was used to its full purpose. And again, uh, there's this great little piece of, of um, when the name of God was written uh, down by Hebrew scribes, they would actually break that pen and throw it away because it was said that that, that pen was perfect. It had completed its purpose. There was no higher use that it could ever be put to. So it was, it was gotten rid of at, at that point, which is, again, beautiful picture of this idea. And so we have a view of perfection that is don't make any, mis- don't any, don't make any mistakes. We have a view of perfection that of I, I got my new iPhone, and it is perfect. And then my child plays Angry Birds on it, and then it falls over, and it's not perfect anymore. Why? Because it has a dent in it. You know? Very sad. <laughs> um, in some ways, and again, this is where nuance comes in, uh, a more accurate picture of the Hebrew or Greek idea of this word perfect would be the very dented, very cracked, very used phone that had served its purpose and was now being put on the shelf for the, for the next generation of, of phone. It's a weird translation, you know, there. But you get that idea of, like, it's about being complete. It's about being whole. And, again, that changes the way that we look at this entire story because it's not about don't make any mistakes with your thoughts. That's impossible. We know that. But it is about moving towards something. And in this case, really, moving towards someone, moving toward the person of Jesus, moving toward becoming the kind of creation that he has enabled us to be by, by his grace. And so let's rewind back to the metaphor that I was using of, of what it means to have healthy sexuality in, or at least the lesson that I learned as a, as a person growing up in the church, which is don't have sex before you get married it's easy to see why that is such a limited picture because God doesn't just care about the behavior of don't make this mistake. He cares, uh, and maybe this is strange to you, but it probably shouldn't be. He cares about, in the same way that he cares about me not wanting to have anger in my heart that would lead to murder, that, that would do that, he cares about a full, healthy, and whole sexual life. And that is a story that won't be completed until I die. <laughs> Does that make sense? It is not about any one moment or any one mistake. All those, all those mistakes and errors and things like that can affect that journey. It is about that whole journey from beginning to end. It is about that entire story. Does that make sense? <laughs> and I, I, this is a bit of a push and a challenge, but I, I, 
I think it is of utmost importance that we inherit what Jesus is saying here and, and not influence the way we walk it out with this work of performance. Because I, I look at the way the church has been disinvited from the global conversation about sexuality. And I can see lots of reasons for that. And so again, nuance, complexity. But I do know that part of the reason is we've limited the conversation about sexuality to don't have sex before you get married. And that becomes such a high uh, priority that sexual health, uh, 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 healthy sexual development, learning to have a healthy relationship with your sexuality, don't really care much about that uh, uh, as long as you're not making doing this thing. Does that make sense? I know that's a lot, not a lot of people's hearts. I know a, a, a lot of people who have done amazing work to not do that. But that is the word that has gotten out. And that is the word that I got growing, growing up. And I dream of a church that could represent this level that Jesus is describing of investment in the internal workings of people with regard to sexuality, with regard to all of the behaviors that are you know, necessary for us to, to be healthy people. But if we were able to show that we are invested in what's inside and behind that as well. Does that, does that make sense to you guys? Is, are, are you seeing the differences between, between these two things? Making sense, making sense? Okay. Um, I am... Um, you know, I, <clears throat> it, it, it's easy to look around and see a tremendous amount of shaking, shaking that's going on in the world right now. It's, people talk about it so much that they almost get tired of, of hearing about it. <laughs> um, and one big part of that shaking has been a tremendous amount of young people leaving the church. <laughs> yeah? Um, and I hear a lot of people asking why, and I think there's a lot of reasons why. Um, I think that we would be less, um, less shaken by the storms that are happening on the world if we learned on a personal basis how to really be influenced by the kind of kingdom that Jesus was wanting to create. And, 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 yeah. and to have the maturity to recognize that when part of what we're doing is shaking apart, to receive the feedback that, okay, if it was built on the rock, it wouldn't come down right now. <laughs> now, again, that doesn't mean you you throw out the baby with the bathwater and just run into a different direction and just, you know, a lot of people doing that. And again, just being direct, a lot of my friends who have done that, uh, it's, they haven't found good on the other side of that, you know? And so it's, it's about humbling our hearts and, and re-listening to the voice of Jesus. It's about approaching the Bible and making sure we're not using the Bible to prove what we want to say, but letting the Bible teach us what it wants to say about who God is and who we're called to be. And that takes time. That takes humility. That takes wrestling with the Lord, wrestling with brothers and sisters. 
and it's challenging. Um, I want to put one last thing to you, just because I, this is about a personal perspective of growth, but I want to tie it to how it has an effect on your ability to have influence on the circumstances around you. Um, because I, I've you know, written books and talked different places, sometimes people want, well, want to talk to me. Um, and, <laughs> and I have, very interestingly, last year I had two people contact me that I've been speaking to regularly. Both these people were atheists, um, were not raised in church whatsoever. Uh, some of them were uh, high up in anti-Christian type sort of organizations, um, uh, all kind of atheistic sort of, sort of ones. And uh, both of them got saved because the audible voice of God started talking to them, <laughs> uh, which is awesome. That's really cool. I, was, when I hear this story, I'm blown away. It's like, audible voice says, hey, go talk to that person, you know, and they have something for you. And that person's like, well, do you want to come to church with me? And, you know, and so that's awesome. That's exciting. That's a beautiful testimony. Um, uh, the harder part of that testimony is one of the reasons this, the, both these people contacted me was they started being discipled and going to church and ran into tremendous friction in certain areas <laughs> that made them desperately want to leave. <laughs> And the only reason, especially one of them, is still going to church is the audible voice of God every week is telling them to go back. Now, nuance. There's plenty of things that that person is working out in their life, working out in their head. Both those people are working out in their life and healing from and, and restoring. And so that, that is going to be a friction-oriented process. That is ironing, sharpening iron. That is, that is to be expected and to be understood, and that makes sense. On the flip side, some of the th experiences that are running into the church, I would suggest are some of these things that are the rot in, in culture that we have inherited from our environment, from our history, places where we have made error in truly representing what Jesus wanted to re represent. Now, the temptation is to jump to what I think those things are and to say, well, it's that, that, that. Not a great idea, because <laughs> that's called responding to error with error. <laughs> um, <laughs> again, the process is in humbling oneself and, in, and recognizing that I will always need to be reshaping my understanding because God is bigger than me, and, and, and I will never be complete until I'm complete. <laughs> and I know I'm not complete yet. <laughs> And so rather than perfection being this, I don't want to make any, mista any mistakes, it's, it's, it's the completion of I'm letting my mistakes push me back towards Jesus, teach me how to walk forward, teach me how to, how to grow differently. Um, the temptation if we're in a perfectionistic mindset is to blame those people for not being able to, to conform to the pattern of our church. And while that might be partially true, um, it does not make us vulnerable to the feedback that it is taking the audible voice of God to keep this person in our environment. And to me, that is a very strong piece of feedback that says, is my house ready for revival? <laughs> is my house ready for revival? If a hundred atheists got saved because of a miraculous happening would I, be, would I have what I need 
to lead those people towards Jesus more and more? Or would I be a piece of friction? Because the friction is necessary. If you have ever seen iron sharpening iron, there is friction on both sides. <laughs> um, so the friction is necessary. But <clears throat> the how do I... Do I have the humility to recognize the difference between friction and a burr in, in my iron, so to speak, a, a, a piece that is missing, a chunk that has been cracked or, or is broken? Does that, does that make sense? Do I have the humility of heart to be able to look at those things and be influenced by Jesus on those issues? Yeah? Now, I'm intentionally leaving that open because I could jump to a bunch of conclusions about that, but that's not what it's about. It's not about even necessarily having the right conclusions. It's about, I believe, a posture of heart. Does that make sense? It's about a posture of heart towards the Lord as, as we go forward. Um, the last thing I want to say is one of the unfortunate things that happens in a perfectionistic culture is that we, uh, shame becomes a wonderful tool for, shame is great at getting behavior out of people. So we're really good at it. Shame, shame is very effective at getting behavior out of people. Um, and it's not very good at transforming people. <laughs> um, now, to the flip side, Experiencing the emotion of shame and experiencing the emotion of guilt is going to happen in the process of transformation. And so we don't want, the goal is not to run away from shame. The goal is to move towards transformation. <laughs> Does that make sense? And so, but we as the people who are, again, we, we talked about this some time ago. If you've known God, if you've been following God for more than three or four years, you are more equipped than the disciples were when they became the apostles. <laughs> So if you have known God for any length of time, you are a mother or a father of this faith, and you carry authority with everyone you speak to. And so when you carry power and authority with anyone you speak to, we need to be responsible to check the tools in our hand to see if they're the same tools that Jesus uses, <laughs> you know, to make sure they're carrying the same grace time and time and time again. You know, we don't do that sometimes for lots of reasons, because we don't feel powerful, because we don't feel listened to or whatever else. But... Um, so I, I want to challenge both sides of that, of shame is a really great way to get behavior, but behavior is not the only goal. The main goal is the transformation of the heart, the, the renewal of the heart, to become the actual humans that God designed us to be, the actual sons and daughters that in the Garden of Eden he designed and built us to be. Um, but also recognize that we're not supposed to just run away from shame. Now there are times where environments and people are harmful and we do need to take a step back so that's that's part of it but just because there's shame or just because we experience guilt doesn't mean that that is wrong or invalid it means i need to know what jesus is saying about this does that make sense so I, again i want to challenge all of us that um not everyone in this room has the same story as i did and there is still this performance thing in us that says that i won because i didn't have sex before i got married <laughs> Um, instead, we want to engage with the heart of a father who cares about our sexuality every single stage of our life. And so 
I don't want my story to create shame in any part of the story because you are moving to the exact same completeness that I'm moving towards to. And every single person in this room is moving towards to. That's the beauty of the redemption of the gospel is that regardless of what your story is, how messy it was, what mistakes you made, what, what, no matter how big or how small those things, we are all invited to move towards the completeness that is only available in Christ Jesus only available in Christ Jesus because anything else is, is utterly inadequate and will always fail and fall apart. Okay. All right. We can talk about this more, but stand up real quick, if you will. Um, I feel there's a, there's a when, when I had that vision and I saw that vein of, of rot in the middle of this thing, I heard the Lord say, again, one of the one of them was it's the consequences of your humanity, and then I heard um, being unwilling to face the consequence of your humanity is the result of a lack of integrity. If we can't look at areas we might have made error, made mistake, because performance will drive us away from being able to see that. Because if I didn't do well, then that means I failed and I'm bad and I'm less valuable. That's what a performance mindset will do. Or a performance mindset will stare at that and beat ourselves up and say, I'm the worst, I'm awful, it's all my fault, oh my goodness. Neither is the case. It is integrous, it is mature, it is moving towards that completion to be able to look at those things and recognize, I I have perpetuated shame with the way I have spoke with perfectionism in about this issue. Or I have made this error, I have made this mistake, but I have condemned myself in a way that Jesus has not. And I have denied myself the right to move toward the, the wholeness and the health and the completeness that God has for me. And so I just want to invite the Lord right now just to communicate to our heart. Lord, we just invite your voice into our lives, Lord. We recognize that we don't want to have a performance mindset Yet, just as when we marry someone, just as when we're a father or a mother to to someone, just as when we're in a friendship with someone, there is a response that is required. There is things that you need to do. There are duties that need to be performed. But Lord, we recognize that we have sometimes performed those duties out of a performance mindset, out of getting our value out of what we do, out of getting our significance out of what we do, rather than as an overflow of our covenant, of our relationship, of our connection to you, of our connection to our family. So, Lord, we just ask you to begin doing this work in our hearts, Lord, that we would recognize that you are not just interested in behavior. You are, in, you are interested in the transformation of the human heart, that you are interested in writing the Torah on our mind, writing the Torah in our heart, placing it in our heart so that it becomes us. We don't have to try to follow that, that we are that thing, but we are that, that new creation, that, that, that original, uh, a being that is adherent to that original design. And so, Lord, we just invite you to speak to us, to guide us, to reveal that to us right now. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I just, just real quick, I just saw this picture of, um, I saw two groups of people. I saw people whose faith has been shaken over the last uh, th- three to five years. Um, and I just saw Jesus coming, and I saw him taking apart all those pieces, sitting on the table, and just uh, 
uh, squeezing the, the wounds in his hand and squeezing his blood into all those cracks and, and reassembling that, 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 that thing that has been broken. And I saw him doing it slowly and, and patiently and showing you how he was putting each piece. So if you've been in that state, I just release encounters with Jesus, a hunger for the word, a, hundred, a hunger for a renewed lens for the word of God, that we would be able to have that, that, um, that rebuilding of faith on, on the rock, on the, the solid foundation, that we would experience that. I also saw some of you that over the next week or month, the Lord is going to bring people to you um, that, that, are in, that are in need of motherhood and fatherhood. And you're going to feel the invitation to mother and father these people. And the Lord is going to begin to speak to you about how to mother and father them the way that he would. The way that he would. How to, and, and it's going to, I just saw it was going to involve um, having to wrestle with the Lord on the way that you were mothered and fathered. Not, a, not rejecting or fully accepting the way that you were mother and fathered, but being able to sort out the kingdom of God that was in those things and the things that were the, the consequences of people's humanity. And that you were able in that to release an even more pure, an even more complete version of, uh, of that mothering and fathering to to the to this this person or to these people, you know that word perfection. Again, this idea of complete, compl- uh, the idea of whole. The only thing that it gets close to our definition of perfect is in like pure metal, like a metal that is ultra pure. That is the closest thing they would have had that would have come close to our idea of perfection. But you don't get pure metal by cutting pure metal out of out of a stone. You get it by refining it. It is a process that happens over time, sometimes slowly, over and over, as all the things that are not gold, that are not silver, pop out, burn out, rise to the surface and are scooped out, that, again, it is still this picture of a process that has a completion point in it. And so, Lord, we invite you into our hearts to be, continue the refinement that you've been doing. And we, rec- and we humble our hearts to you, Lord, if there are any things that we've been holding on to that you've been trying to scoop out of us. If there's any things that this, that this heat of these last years are meant to burn out of us, Lord, we make ourselves humble to your heart and to your hand and to say, Lord, we, we want you to have our way, uh, excuse me, have your way in us. <laughs> the opposite of that. <laughs> have your way in us, Lord. We make our hearts vulnerable to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks so much, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.